Welcome to Shovel Talk, a podcast for economic developers. From your friends at the Golden Shovel Agency. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Shovel Talk with Amanda and Bethany from Golden Shovel Agency. Before we hop into our conversation with Gary Clark, we just want to say thank you so much for all the support and love with our podcast. Our first episode received lots of downloads and engagement on social media. So we just want to thank everyone for your support. We have a very inspiring interview for you today. Gary Clark is a president and CEO of the Greater Fremont Development Council. He's also an author and public speaker. Listen as we chat with him about his life growing up in the projects of DC and his move to rural Nebraska. We'll also hear about his most memorable moments as an author and speaker and find out why he wears a bow tie every day. Here's Gary Clark. My name's Gary Clark. I'm the president and CEO of the Greater Fremont Development Council here in Fremont, USA, just outside of uh, Omaha, Nebraska. We are the sprawling rural metropolis of Fremont, and I've had the opportunity to be in Fremont for just over three years uh, doing the economic development efforts, developing projects, programming, and just having a great time in rural America. Well, and speaking of rural America, you are not originally from there, are you? No, I am a Washington native, born and raised in Washington, D.C., and uh, definitely found a little bit of opportunity and hope in the good life state, so to speak, in Nebraska. So, yeah. So, Gary, um, what life moment made you realize that you wanted to go into economic development? Well, I had a really rough upbringing in Washington, D.C., and I think... Early on, I knew I wanted to improve communities, probably around the age of eight or nine. We were homeless when I was coming up around that time. Both my parents were addicts, and we were in the late 80s, and it was really rough in Washington, D.C., one of the highest murder rates in the country at the time. And I just saw a huge outpouring and outcrying of of need in our community in Washington, D.C., And we lived in the projects, public housing. Um, I was a food stamp kid. And I just looked around me and I knew that this couldn't be it. And so at that time, I thought, if I ever get the chance, I want to give back to communities. I want to improve them. I want to be part of the reason why everyone is able to succeed. So it was early on that I, I knew I wanted to have an impact. Yeah, as someone with kids, as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, what have you, that's not normally the type of things that children think about. And I think in, in one way, it really speaks to your resiliency because you were in that situation and actually looked at it as a way to inspire future opportunity. In your work today, I guess, how do, how do you think economic developers can influence that next generation? Yeah, I think we have to really, really tap into uh, the humanistic piece that makes us go here. And I think we can get bogged down into the nuances of the profession, the details, the word, words that, that lend itself to site selection and recruitment. But when it gets down to it, it's that humanistic piece uh, that we're providing an opportunity to change someone's life with every job and every program that we provide. And so if we're talking to uh, young folks about what it is to be an economic developer, we have to talk in that respect, where 
you're a change agent. You're not just out there seeking uh, projects and, and businesses to recruit and grow, but you're looking for a way to specifically change someone's life. And not just one, but multiple people in a rural community or urban. And I think that's the beauty of it is that you see it tangibly happening with economic development. So I would say that the key is to directly speak to the heart of those young folks looking for an opportunity. I would love to talk a little bit about where your career path is taking you. Because I do, I definitely, I know in your, and I'll give a little bit away here, I know in your book that um, you really talk about, you know, it is about your life and and the difficulties that you've been through. So um, can you tell us kind of where your career path has taken you and then we'll dive into some of the pieces of that? Yeah, that's a great question. I started off leaving Nebraska going to Florida with my first role, which was actually in Newberry, Florida, right outside of Gainesville. This is my first job as a city planner. And then I became a Main Street manager at that time. And shortly after that, I was a little homesick and I had just gotten married and we moved back to Washington, D.C., where I did uh, my first job as an economic developer. And then I realized quickly that I had the skills to be a director or the head of an organization. So I took a job as the Main Street manager on North Capitol Street in DC. And interestingly enough, my career path shifted because there was a drive-by shooting in front of uh, my storefront office. I just had my first child. Her name's Aslan. She's going to be 12 uh, in March. Um, But at that time, uh, it was early on, and, and my wife was from Oakland, Iowa, so it wasn't normal for her to see that type of stuff happening. We decided to relocate to Nebraska, and I took my first Nebraska job as the economic development director for a rural county called Cumming County in West Point, Nebraska, and uh, about 10,000 people. So going from Washington, D.C. to there was a huge shift in my career path. I was taking a leap of faith that um, rural places might help sustain us as a family. And they welcomed us. And then all of a sudden, uh, like Nebraska just provided this support and my career just moved at a fast pace. I started out supporting and and joining organizations like uh, the Nebraska Economic Development Association, then the uh, National Rural Economic Developers Association, and also, at, you know, having the opportunity to engage organizations like Golden Shovel, it just started to be an opportunity for me to build on uh, a career path. It's taken me from there to the Nebraska Investment Finance Authority as their manager of a $10 million fund, um, moving on from there to deciding, hey, I still want to be my own boss. And I took a job in Fremont a little over three years ago to take over their economic development realm. And that's been my path so far as realizing that I can have impact, but also run an organization and create programs that people really like. So writing a book and um, starting to uh, speak publicly, where did that fit into it? It only started when I got to rural Nebraska. I I didn't think of my story as one that should be told, um, but I had friends and my wife as well 
uh, who said, man, you're a national champion. You went to a rural college in rural Nebraska called Dana College. You broke 11 records. Nobody's broken that many records in college before. Um, and look where you came from and look where you're at now. People want to hear that story. And uh, it wasn't until a few years ago I decided to write my memoir. And it was through the opportunity that I received as a rural catalyst through the Sherwood Foundation, which is uh, Susie Buffett's uh, organization in, in Omaha. So I got to travel a little bit, start my public speaking effort, um, which was first half, it first happened at the National Rural Economic Development Association Conference in Denver. I spoke about uh, rural opportunities. Next thing you know, it, someone else said, hey, we need you to speak here. And it kind of snowballed after that. And in the midst of that, I was writing my story at airport bars and, and hotel lobbies. And then the next thing you know, I got a connection in Omaha with a lady named Mandy Mowers from Oxide Design. And the rest is history. I published it last year and people are still buying it and posting about it and doing book clubs this year. It's just crazy. Well, I'm getting ready to, I was just looking at it on Amazon and I'm getting ready to buy it and read it. So I'm excited too. <laughs> Thank you. Of you course. Know, one, one other piece to that was, and it's probably the direct piece of your question was about the public speaking thing. And I started off with small groups and as the economic development director in Cumming County, I would speak to high school kids. I would speak to anyone about our community. But I started to realize that people wanted to hear a little bit of my story, too. Why in the heck was this kid with a bow tie on who looked like Steve Urkel in this rural community? And so I had to explain it. And then people got into that and they loved it. And, and so I started to tell that story. And I had this hidden talent as a, a spoken word poet. And so I started to use that in my presentations. I'd start off with it. I'd, I'd surprise people because the first thing they'd hear was me break into a spoken word piece. And from there, um, I'm, I actually did a TED Talk last year at Creighton University. That turned into the largest group I'd ever spoken to. And then last but not least, um, that turned into some other speaking opportunities. So it's just been very interesting. When you say largest group, how, how large are we talking? I'm very curious. Well, uh, I had spoken at a couple of universities where it was about three to 400 people. I, and so this last one was about 500 plus people at Creighton University. And for me, that was amazing. And they all stood up and gave me a round of applause. I was tearful. My parents were there. They were in the audience. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. So Gary, I'm curious, were you always comfortable with public speaking? You know, how, how was it at first with you? And, you know, how is it now? If you had fear at first, do you still, you know, feel a little bit of fear going onto the stage? What, tell us about that. Yeah, so the only way I can describe it is as a child, I did not like speaking at all. And I mean, just answering people when they spoke to me, I was fearful of that. But internalizing what was happening as a child, I began, began to be really confident in myself and, and my father and my mother, even though they were going through their addiction, they would also help me to internalize that I was supposed to do something special. And I began to write at, in a, around seventh grade or so. 
and having to present at that time. That's when I was fearful as heck. Like, I didn't want to be in front of people. I trembled. I stumbled my words. But doing it that early, Amanda, by the time I got to Cumming County <laughs> and doing presentations and feedlots or <laughs> whatnot, um, it was a piece of cake. And I loved it. And I found passion in it and opportunity. And, you know, I know what it feels like to be LeBron James putting on a jersey <laughs> and going into an arena feeling like this is where I'm supposed to be. And so now when I get up there and I speak, um, it's all from the heart. I know there are hiccups that happen. Uh, there are mistakes, but the passion is what keeps me going. So as you said, you know, some of your talks, they're at these different, you know, economic development related events. So if there's economic developers out there listening and they could see, you know, their career advancing by, by taking opportunities to speak at these type of, types of events, but they kind of have that fear, you know, of, I don't know that I can commit to this yet. I'm, I'm, I'm scared. What would be your advice to them? What would you say would be, say, the first step in moving in that direction to take on some opportunities for public speaking? The actor, Hugh Laurie, I just posted this on LinkedIn uh, the other day, uh, and it's a, a quote that um, I read every year around December to kind of reboot me and move me forward. But it really talks about no one's ever really ready for anything. And now is always as good as time as ever to, to try. And so I would say to those folks, if you are a director in a rural community or urban community, and your job is to promote that community, those people, and to draw them in, you really have no choice. It is your job. It's your livelihood to, to manifest the opportunities that are in your community. And by telling that story that you have about yourself or about your community, uh, you always have the opportunity to provide someone with an open door to tell their story. But if you don't do that, then they can't feel released. And so that's what I would tell folks is, you know, forget about the fear that puts that barrier in front of you and step over that, that wall of fear. And, you know, there are endless possibilities once you step into a realm of no fear. And that's what I've learned here. I didn't have it all planned out, Amanda. I just started to accept the opportunities as they came and not be fearful. I start to run to them. And uh, I, I really think that that's what other people should do. Awesome. Do you have a uh, talk routine that you take yourself through to kind of get hyped up and ready for it? <laughs> <laughs> I like hip hop music. So <laughs> I listen to, I listen to a, a lot of uh, hip hop music to get myself pumped up. And then, you know, I like to rehearse some of my spoken word stuff to get me motivated. And I think about the, the audience, you know, and, and you tailor the, those presentations, you tailor them to the audience. You want to make sure that you are speaking to something that they can relate to. Awesome. Um, so let's shift gears over to your book. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book. Well, um, so the, the book is basically a memoir of my journey from the D.C. projects to rural Nebraska. Um, it's a very quick read, uh, a little over 200 plus pages. And really, it, it talks about my journey where I started out as a poor uh, homeless kid, not seeing any opportunity where I was. 
and doing a little bit of self-sabotaging too, because that was the nature of the community I was in. And then finding hope in a place I had never dreamt of, never thought of, didn't think anything about Nebraska, about cornfields, <laughs> about cattle, about the smell of money, none of that. And um, it really is a story just about finding an oasis of hope in a place that is unexpected, realizing that your fear that you have about succeeding or about reaching your goals, if you continue to push beyond the fear, the fear of failure and those things, you might find out some cool things about your life and your journey. So that's what the book is about. It's called Unlikely Viking. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and on my clarkspeaks.com website. So I'm curious, how long did it take you to actually write the book? You said uh, you were writing in, in airport bars, which happens to be one of my favorite, the bar happens to be one of my favorite places to write. But, but tell us, how long did it take you to write the book? What, what was difficult about it? The best parts? Yeah, that? so it, it took about 18 months to write it because I was in a phase where I was excited about writing it early on. And so those, those airport bars and places like that, I needed the noise of the crowd, of the sounds, because growing up, that was my atmosphere. Um, I have three sisters. They were always loud. The mother who was loud, friends, family, neighbors. And so I just wanted to be comforted by that sound, that noise. And so that helped me to write. And the toughest part was actually once I hired a, an editor and decided that we were going to try to self-publish as opposed to uh, pitching it to publishing companies, that's when it got tougher because um, most of these places have, I don't know, five to six editors and we're just working one-on-one. And um, once I got into deeper stories about my journey, I realized that I hadn't dealt with some of those issues with my parents, uh, my siblings. And so I was at this point where I wanted to stop. And because of my editor, I was able to keep pushing through. Um, she saw that I was, I was retreating from it when we were at points of shifts and changes in the book and edits and things like that, because I hadn't dealt with that stuff. But I was putting it all out on the page for people to see. I was putting all of these stories out there. And so that was the toughest part. And once I got over that hump to realize that saying something about my journey would free someone else to say something about theirs, then I got back into it. Making sure that I realized that my writing was going to be different for anyone. It wasn't going to be some historic writer's language or what people were used to. I wanted to speak from a first-person experience where if you picked it up, you felt like, oh, I really don't want to put this down. And, and so that was my goal. Well, you kind of answered the next question is what, what kept you going through the process. I mean, that, that gave me goosebumps. That's so powerful. Wow. <laughs> Anything else with, with what kept you going with that? I spoke to my parents. Um, I'm really close to them now. We, we talk all the time. And just some of the stories that, that we went through as a family, that kept me going because I know there's someone else out there going through it. And um, we had some tearful nights where I'd share some of the book with my mom. And uh, I think that kept me going because she had come to a point where she hadn't remembered everything because she had blocked it out. 
all of the, the bad things that had happened so that she could move forward. And now we're at this place where I'm bringing it back up. And it just showed so much strength that I realized that if she could make it through her down times and to come back and come out of it, uh, there was someone else out there that needed to hear this and how she helped me to get to Nebraska, how she helped me to get a, a scholarship and how uh, a lot of that came out of her getting clean from her addiction. So, yeah. Gary, thank you for sharing about those conversations with your mom. Honestly, I'm sure that those were so incredibly difficult for her. And then also as her son to relive as a grown man who now has a family of his own. The understanding I'm sure you had for what she experienced was probably a lot deeper than it was for you observing it as a kid. And you mentioned her being able to get through that and your family being able to get through that. Well, right now there are people in Fremont, I'm sure, and literally all over the country and the world who are hurting, who are hurting like never before because of COVID, whether that's due to a loss of a family member or a loss of a job or just the stress and the constant pressure that's coming from not knowing what's going to happen next. Uh, what can you say to them to help them get through this? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I, I really think that resiliency is a part of our nature as human beings and as Americans. And, uh, and so I think in my journey, it's just a small microcosm of what we can get through here as Americans and as human beings across the world, um, really. And so I believe that all of you that are listening, if you're going through anything due to COVID, uh, that it will get better as long as we keep fighting uh, for that good cause and that good human spirit that we keep that positive energy out there, that we support each other, and that we believe that um, there's a better day coming. And it's gonna take a lot of work to get back to where we uh, want it to be this year. And, and a lot of businesses have lost uh, those opportunities and have closed. And, and it's gonna take a lot of support from people like me who have jobs like me uh, to provide programming and services. So we're here with you and we're gonna do this together. Yeah, thank you. And I think uh, that mindset of doing it together, approaching the community as a collective whole is something that you and I have discussed in the past with your general approach to economic development, not looking at economic development issues as singular things, but really how everything works together. Could you share more about your approach? Yeah, sure. So I, I look at this as holistic economic development. That's kind of uh, the phrase that, that we use. And that's because there's synergy in all of these pieces um, that you have the business attraction piece and the retention piece, but you also have that quality of life component that's really uh, key to drawing families in, to keeping them in your community, to expanding their dreams. So the housing components are tied to it, the utilities, those experiences. So it's a whole ecosystem through economic development. And if we're doing the right things and putting our minds on all of those pieces, then we have a more rich community that we can thrive uh, in. But if we are only focused on attraction and we're only focused on uh, retention, then we're gonna have some imbalance. So holistic economic development, looking at all of the best benefits of things and bringing it together for more natural uh, community effort. Is, is what we focus on. Yeah, and I'm going to uh, brag on you guys for a minute, since you're not bragging on yourself. 
So uh, GFDC, I, I have had the privilege of watching Gary, the entire team, their board in action over the past several years. And they have had housing as a huge initiative, for example. And they went from having only a handful of housing starts to literally thousands of units being built in a matter of a couple years. And now they're bringing in these businesses who are going to be creating jobs that require that scale of housing. So I will definitely, like I said, brag on you and say that it's working because now the pieces are together to support the main, I guess, economic development work that people typically think of, which is that investment component. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I appreciate that, Bethany. I, I think we are lucky enough to have a collective of board members who really believe in the mission and purpose of the community, as well as community leaders who believe in it. And, you know, leadership is important. Um, we need the right leadership and it needs to be a partnership of all of us. And so um, you're right, we've had some success and some balance uh, due to that, that effort uh, to bring in housing when no one thought it was important to focus on. So thank you. Exactly. And if you hadn't, um, as we were talking about the other day, now these new jobs that were being created be a lot harder to attract the workforce. So yeah. it was vital. Yeah, that, it's that balance. I mean, we landed a major project in Lincoln Premium Poultry Costco uh, just a few years ago. That meant a, a thousand new jobs, but over $450 million in investment right there. But then we started to see the synergy happening where we had the expansion efforts and people in the community who had companies and thinking, no, we can grow right here. We have a 56,000 square foot facility being built as the headquarters for RTG Medical. Uh, and they started out as a, as a small business in our community and they're adding 200 new jobs. Now we're seeing this balance, as you said, where companies are saying, okay, we got housing now. Oh, we got a little bit of this too. Oh, we're bringing in more jobs. This is where we wanna be. So that synergy is happening for sure. Yeah, and I think that it's awesome because, again, needing to have that vision to see that it's necessary to begin with when maybe not everyone has had that perspective and seeing it come full circle, I think, is pretty incredible. Um, again, we have the bird's eye view of supporting your guys' efforts, but it's, it's definitely been enjoyable to watch. Now, one of the things um, that I think is really interesting is, again, with the new jobs that are being created in Fremont, there is a big workforce attraction effort that's going to need to take place. You are someone who not only did you obviously move to the Midwest initially, um, you know, straight out of high school to play, to play for, for college, right, to be mm -hmm. a college athlete, um, but... You also mentioned that you, your wife, and your child were living in D.C. and made that choice all over again mm -hmm. to come back. Moving your family across the country is significantly more work and also requires a lot more, um, hmm, what shall we say, a little more gumption, right, than just moving as a young man. Can you tell us really what um, you were thinking with more about your experience? What can we all gain from that experience that could be used for these workforce attraction campaigns that need to happen today? Yeah, so I think it was really a pivotal point for us uh, as a family and in my career to, to take a chance. I actually took a pay cut to come to rural uh, Nebraska. And I realized that I was gonna do that for the short term. Uh, I knew that, but I was gonna bet on the fact that uh, Nebraska was gonna provide more opportunity for my family to grow, uh, to be uh, safe and sustained. 
Um, but it was also the incentives that they provided to me to make it an easier transition. And I think that's really what was important for me, Bethany, was that the transition wasn't as hard as, as I thought it would be. And if communities really want to tap into uh, this attraction of people, uh, then we're going to have to be very aggressive about that. And we're going to have to come up with programs that lend itself to, uh, like I call it, um, if you go to McDonald's or any other place, you get the extra value meals, right? And you can, you can pick and choose. I want a number one with the fries and the shake or, you know, I'm, a, I'm feeling like nuggets today. So if you are a family and you think, hey, if they provide us with assistance for our, for our renting a place or they, they abate some of our taxes as we move to the community because we stay there for a long period of time, or we're aggressive like some places in, in rural America where they say, you know what, we'll, we'll give you this plot of land if you build a home here. So we need to really take that step forward. It's not just about advertising a job and hoping that people take it. Um, it, it takes more than that to land people there. And you got to realize that the spouse needs a job too. We know that. And so I think for us, um, when we decided to come back, uh, the school district reached out to us for my wife, who's a school teacher, and they hired her because they knew that that was important. They offered us a moving expense opportunity so that we had a stipend to, to move. So making it easier for people to move across the country is really important, but, but it, it's more about the marketability and telling your story. As Amanda was asking questions about my story, those communities, they have to tell their story and not to the people who look like them or in the same region as them, but to Flint, Michigan and to Washington, D.C., and to Miami, and to California. Tell your story to the places that need you. Yeah, thank you so much, and, and agree. That is so important because, as you mentioned earlier in the call, you talked about economic development needing to be about human interest. And I feel like that kind of brings it full circle to that human interest component. Is like you said, it's not just about a job listing, but it's human interest. What does it mean for your family? What opportunities does it really provide? Yeah, yeah, that's right, Bethany. Paint that picture for us, you know? Whatever community you're in, I have no clue what it is. And I'm living in Flint, Michigan, but I'm not having the greatest experience at all. I'm going to think, huh, I never thought about a rural place in, in Michigan, or I've never thought about a rural place in Missouri or whatever your community is. But you got to paint that picture for, for people to see it. Uh, it's just like artwork. We, we love to scan and see all the pieces to it, but you got to break it down for us. Break it down. Let me see all the essence that is your community and, and don't be afraid to share it. No, that's great insight. Thank you. And you're right because uh, nobody's going to move to a brochure. We got to learn a little more, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's got to be a little bit deeper than that. Okay. Now I have a question this is it's a tougher one. You mentioned earlier that now you are running towards things that scare you and taking those opportunities. So what scares you? What are you running towards right now? Ooh, that is a tough question. Oh, I got to check. Brought it up. <laughs> I'm going to check with someone in the room and see if I can answer that. <laughs> no, uh, you know, I, I really think I, I know that where I'm at today 
is a huge opportunity for the advancement of Fremont and the Nebraska communities that we surround. But I also know that that I have dreams and hopes and aspirations like anyone else. And, and now I've moved to this place where I want to make sure that I'm continuing to grow that impact. So I, I, I know today I'm afraid that, you know, I have to write this uh, screenplay for the book now, you know, that, that someone's asked me to, to take a stab at it. And I've never thought of that before, Bethany, but I'm diving into it, you know. Um, I've had people say, hey, if you're doing so great with this public speaking, I want to see you be in Congress one day. Again, something that makes me really sweaty and nervous, but, <laughs> but you know, I have to start to think about, you know, those things in the future down the line. How can I make a larger impact? But I, I would say I'd be remiss if I didn't thank all of the communities, all the places that I've been, all the people who have supported uh, me and my hopes and dreams, or helping me to see something that I did not see at all, which was Nebraska. So uh, to answer your question, long story short, um, I know that there are things that I'm going to have to tackle in the future in order to continue to push to make a huge impact. And I'm not as fearful as I was uh, a few years back to, to take a stab at it. That's awesome. Thank you. So I, I'm curious, what has been your best mistake? Something that you have learned from the most of your, out of your life, or even something that, you know, didn't work out as planned, but, but turned out better, you know, in the end. Tell us a little bit, a little bit about that for people who might be dealing with something in our life currently that's just not working out. I mean, COVID, a perfect example, you know, but we're seeing some positives out of it. So tell me something like that. What's been your, your best mistake? Yeah, so I would have to say I've taken some roles where uh, it just didn't feel like it was a fit, right? Um, Before I took the job with Fremont, um, I went back to a place where I was an intern at um, Nebraska Investment Finance Authority, and I felt like it was my best mistake, and not because NIFA isn't some amazing organization that does excellent work for communities providing housing, but it wasn't a fit for me. And I had taken the mistake of trying to be safe. I was, I was going to a place that was safe, that they knew me and that um, I could just fit in and not have to lead. And that was my biggest mistake, but it was my best (laughs) because it definitely put me in a place where I realized, no, this is your calling is to lead it is not to, to sit back and just do some programming work um, and, and just let someone else lead you. That's not going to be it for you. And I had to wrestle with that. And the opportunity came uh, to go to Fremont and lead again. And even though I was fearful about doing that again on a bigger scale, I decided to just uh, let my fears go by the wayside and I stepped into it. So uh, my best mistake it's definitely uh, taking a job that I knew was not going to fill my cup and, and, and finding out that I needed to take a step outside of that. So tell me, what would you say is the number one habit you formed that led to success or your number one daily habit that if you do this every day, you know, that's just set my day right. I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a good day. 
Yeah, for me, honestly, Amanda, it's it's everything's tied to energy. And uh, every day I wake up, I reflect on a few things that I could be in a far worse place than I am today by the choices that I've made. Um, but because I have that opportunity uh, the next day, I, I lean on the fact that I have a awesome family. I, I have friends who are rooting for me back home in Washington, D.C. I have board members who are rooting for me here in Nebraska. And uh, that gives me moving forward, knowing that I have a dream and I haven't necessarily reached that stopgap yet. And so every day that's motivation enough is that I get to change somebody's life with the work that I'm doing. And that if I'm working hard to find a new company or expand a housing project or do workforce housing uh, development work, that it's not going to necessarily be a direct benefit to me but it's going to help somebody else. And that's motivation enough. So are you reading uh, any book currently that um, you might suggest or the last one you read that you would suggest uh, to your fellow economic developers or colleagues? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't know if, if they'll take me up on this suggestion, but I started reading the Federalist Papers. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's what I've been focused on is it's just uh dealing with the, the pieces and components of our country and, and how we formed and, and trying to take pieces of some of the history there to make sure that, number one, we don't make similar mistakes, but also that we, we know where we came from. So if you are an economic developer, it doesn't hurt to know your roots, doesn't hurt to know um, the history of which we've established ourselves. And, you know, I look at Nebraska and they had this act when they first established themselves uh, to give land away to people who would be willing to farm the land. That's how we established our population. And I wrote in the Omaha World Herald uh, column I did a few weeks back was, I said, you know what, if we were creative way back then, <laughs> we can be just as creative today in people recruitment. So sometimes it, it helps to lean on history to learn what we can do today. So, uh, Gary, what is your wig? What is your wildly important goal for this year? You know, uh, it's going to be to focus on continuing to knock down, first of all, our organizational goals. I, I think it's the biggest piece for me is to leave a lasting legacy. That's important. And I, I think that's my wig is wherever I'm at, wherever I land, uh, whatever I'm doing, uh, that I'm uh, impacting people as positively as I can. So that's my wig really go going into 2021, uh, especially with all the things that are barriers and hurdles for people all over the country and the world. I wanna make sure that I'm lending a hand to those citizens that need a hand up, a little bit of help. And uh, you know, I also wanna have a lot of fun in 2021. I wanna make sure that what I do, where I speak, that I'm engaging and inspiring people. Now, I have to ask, because uh, you mentioned this earlier, and I've seen this in a few of your pictures, the bow tie. Mm -hmm. Is there a story behind the bow tie? Why? I mean, I love it. It's, I think it looks great. But i um, just so curious if there's a story behind that of, um, of why you are sporting a bow tie. Yeah. So I was in this knife fight once on the Chattahoop. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> I was, I was like, follow him. Like, okay, this is, <laughs> is going to be a great story. <laughs> yeah. 
it's not really that fancy. So we're in Maryland at a uh, big mall with my wife and uh, we went to the silk uh, bow tie shop. And I hadn't worn bow ties at all at that point. It was probably 2010. And she said, you know what? I'll buy you a bow tie if you uh, would wear it. I said, okay, I'll wear it if you tie it. (laughs) And so she learned to tie it that day at the store. And I bought two $50 bow ties. I don't know why I paid that much for them, but they were silk. I wore them to work the next day. And then every morning for at least, uh, every other morning for at least a year, in order for me to, to go out in the bow tie, my wife would have to tie it. So it was kind of our moment each morning to kind of uh, spend that time listening to her talk while she's tying the tie for me or something like that. And then it turned into this, just this comforting feeling, you know, and I just feel good when I wear them. There's so many different colors and designs and I don't like how the long necktie hangs down low. It gets in the way when you're eating and all this stuff. This is just clean and it feels like me. I love it. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. So Amanda, if people out there want to join the bow tie effort, please join me. Just come on aboard. Buy yourself one or two. I can help you tie it. Have you you started like a bow tie Facebook group that people can join? Have you done that? No? (laughs) No, no, that sounds more like it would be like a self-help group. (laughs) I don't know if that's my character at all, my personality, but I have, uh, you know, in public speaking opportunities, events, annual meetings. I did one in Southern uh, Minnesota, where the folks asked me after I presented and shared my books, they pulled out their cell phones and they said, hey, could you show us how you tie a bow tie? And so it's become kind of a thing when I go to these events where people actually don't know how to tie them. And the fact that I can do it without a, uh, uh, having to look in the mirror or something like that, they just love it. So it's kind of a, a thing now. So your wife does, doesn't tie them anymore for you? You do the tying now? That's a great question. So one time I went on a business trip and I realized I had ties and I didn't know how to tie them. So I called her first and she was trying to describe it. No, you got to go through that loop. And then there was a little bit of an argument like, I can't get it. And then so I YouTubed it and I spent maybe three minutes doing it. And then boom, I I was set free. (laughs) That's awesome. You can learn anything on YouTube these days, I swear. (laughs) So Gary, tell us, what's your happy place? I have a lot of happy places. (laughs) You can only Um, pick one, your top, (laughs) or top three, you know, whichever. (laughs) So um, obviously my family, I have three uh, amazing children. I have a son and two girls, and uh, going home to them is my happy place for sure. seeing the energy and joy of those kids the other is i'm huge i'm a huge basketball player and fan uh when i get out to play which COVID has kind of taken that away you know it's kind of a it's kind of a thing i just love i love the game i love playing and then last but not least it is actually um writing some really cool poetry sometimes when i'm in the right mood so those things make me uh feel at peace 
and I'm gonna I'm gonna jump out of your rules of three and give you a fourth. It is seafood, seafood, seafood. I'm from DC, Maryland blue crabs. If you haven't had it, you gotta get some. That is my favorite meal um, whenever I can get it. And I've had my family ship it uh, dry ice overnight to me, a whole bushel. And I've shared it with our whole neighborhood. So yeah. That's effort. That's awesome. <laughs> Gary, thank you so much for talking with us today. This has been just an inspiring conversation and um, I'm extremely impressed about your career path and just what you've come from and accomplished. If our listeners want to learn more about you or secure you for a speaking engagement or anything like that, tell, tell them where they can find you. Thank you, Amanda. Uh, it's been great to be with you all. Uh, they can find me at clarkspeaks.com. That's my website. Or they can reach me at unlikelyviking on Instagram. And then last but not least, I have a Twitter handle, which is my full name. It's uh, Gary with two R's, D-E, which is my middle initials, and Clark, Gary D. Clark Jr. on Twitter. So yeah, reach out. Awesome. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today on Shovel Talk. On behalf of myself, Bethany, Amanda, my co-host, and Darren, who is Oz behind the curtain, we thank you so much for the support that you have shown us as we released our Shovel Talk podcast series and for how many of you were able to download and listen to our previous episode featuring Horton Hobbs. We hope that you enjoyed this episode with Gary Clark just as much. Also wanted to give you a heads up that Golden Shovel will be releasing a campaign of tools and material for economic developers in Q1 that is aimed at how to attract a remote workforce. It'll expand on some of the concepts that Gary Clark presented today about the need to engage people who may otherwise not consider your community and some of the best practices for how you can do so. Stay tuned for that information and we hope that you join us for our next episode of Shovel Talk. Thanks everyone.